Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. There's that old adage, you hear something three times, it becomes the truth, whether it is or not. So part of our goal is to just try to create more parity in terms of the types of information people are getting, knowing that that can make that disinformation less effective, less dangerous. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Tara McGowan, who you will know as a serial entrepreneur and expert in digital media if you follow the movers and shakers in political technology. She previously ran Acronym. Tara is now the CEO and founder at Good Information, Inc., and publisher of Courier Newsroom, which is operating local, modern, digital, journalistic enterprises in eight states so far with the support of key progressive donors and is working to fight right-wing disinformation with good information. Tara returns to my show to talk about what she's up to with Courier Newsroom, including how organizing fits into her model. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tara McGowan with Courier Newsroom. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Tara, you've been a guest on my show before, so I'm not going to ask you about your biography like I do to a lot of guests. People can go back and see an episode in 2018 where your very interesting history is expanded upon in more detail. But it has been a bit. Obviously, you did a lot in the lead up to the 2020 election, but you've also launched a collection of local news organs under Courier News. Yeah, I've I've launched a news organization in 2019. In 20, it was in 2019. Mm-hmm. So it was launched through acronym and then spun out into sold out into good information. Is that That's how right. it went? Okay. Yeah, it was a it was an incubation out of acronym, our nonprofit organization in 2019, before I, you know, really had a, had a strong case to make for uh, for donors about investing in progressive news in journalism. But we set out to really make that case and we did. And so after the 2020 election and the runoff, uh, in January in Georgia, I made the decision to leave acronym and to start a public benefit corporation, Good Information Inc. That would be the new parent company. So Courier would be independent and I could focus full time on scaling progressive journalism infrastructure. And I seem to remember you, you or one of your employees talking about a finding that when you linked to a news article, that it was more efficacious in persuading people that it was valuable. Was that the kind of the root of this? It was one. There were a lot of factors. I started my career in journalism. To your point, we talked long uh, about my my resume many years ago, but I was a journalist for a time. I went to journalism school. I also um, have always been fairly obsessed with the power and influence of the right-wing media in this country. And so at Acronym, we were really testing-driven across all of our digital media and communications programs. And One of the hypotheses that we tested over and over again was the efficacy of news and boosting news online, especially to low information audiences, which is just a terrible way to describe most Americans, people who do not proactively look for for good information or news anymore in a really kind of passive media consumption environment. 
And so we found time and time again, we did so many tests and so many experiments. And we kept finding that news was more effective in certain environments than political or advocacy ads at informing voters of this audience and in in mobilizing them to turn out in elections. And so that was really fascinating to me because I am very concerned about the incredibly deep and divisive polarization in this country right now and that we're seeing in countries around the world. And one of the interesting things we found testing news and boosting news was that it didn't have the same backlash effect among Republicans, for instance, even if it was journalism and headlines that were about positive achievements of Democrats or about Democratic candidates, the way that ads do. So it didn't polarize people as much when they were reached with headlines and news and journalism, because there was still some level of trust with that, unlike their response often to political ads. That was one of our key findings. But then also local journalism is dying in this country. There's quite a big crisis there. Their business models have not been able to really keep up. There is a lack of local trusted information. And yet most Americans still cite local news as the most trusted source of information. And so that's another important piece of the puzzle. So what would you call the mission of Courier? Yeah. So Courier's mission is to build a more informed, engaged, and representative America. The way that we do that is threefold. One, we have a really specific audience that we care about. As I mentioned, these are the millions of Americans who have been left behind by for-profit journalism and are increasingly reached by disinformation because they're getting their news primarily on social media or through their own trusted networks and communities. We intentionally target them through boosted news, but also through organizing programs that I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about. So audience is is really key. A lot of people just think about their audience as whoever will pay for their paywalls or journalism or whoever will find their reporting. And that's not really how media works today. You really need to go to audiences to make sure they get that information. So that's important. The second piece is because of who we want to be reaching, they don't read articles. We've tested this. They mostly are informed by scrolling their social media news feeds and skimming headlines and email newsletters that are very skimmable. I think Axios, for instance, is very, very successful with high information consumers because it tells you how long it's going to take you to read their newsletter. Their coined phrase is smart brevity. We take that approach, but for a very different audience than Axios is looking for. We take that to people who are busy. They have multiple jobs. They're raising families. They are not paying attention to the day-to-day politics of Washington. They're living their lives. And so we want to make information very accessible and relevant to them. And so we reach them primarily on social media and through email newsletters. So our core distribution channels are Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and then email. And we don't just publish articles on those sites, like a lot of news organizations, we actually, our reporters make their journalism and their storytelling native. So a lot of vertical video, a lot of graphics, social graphics and carousels and reels and TikToks. And that's how most people are are really learning about information and news today. So that's how we produce it at Courier. And then the third key difference from Courier and other news organizations is that we measure the impact that our journalism has on civic participation. I think a lot of news organizations in this country have taglines such as democracy dies in darkness, or they have missions about informing the public, and yet they are actually increasingly only informing high information consumers who tend to be higher income, higher educated Americans. And so we want to make sure that we are actually increasing civic participation among our audience through our journalism and not just saying that's our mission. And so we run a lot of experiments that measure the impact of our news on turnout, and we found it to be really effective. We can increase civic participation of our audience that are not as likely to vote simply by delivering them good local journalism from our newsrooms online. There's a lot I want to ask you about all this. It's not a simple model, but it's a very smart one. A lot of what I cover is kind of entrepreneurship in the political space. And you're certainly a person who fits well within that category with a lot of different things that you've tried. And also kind of, I think, entrepreneurship within 
the things that you build, which is is really interesting. Can you just tell me a little bit about what it took to put this together as a company outside of your your nonprofit? Like, how did you capitalize that? How did you make the deal with yourself to buy something that you had started? And how did you go about just all the decisions that it took to make make eight different ones of these and so on. I mean, there's a lot to that story. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, it was not a simple journey for sure. None, no, no sort of venture is of this sort of size and scale. But acronym for, for folks, and I think I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of acronym, acronym really was an incubator. It was an incubator of programs and organizations, and it was very test-driven. It was really meant to fill a space that I felt needed filling in terms of being able to invest more in experimentation and shared learnings about how to reach different audiences online, especially in such a rapidly evolving ecosystem that, that the internet and social media is today. And so one of the things that we tested and learned was what I just mentioned, the efficacy of news and journalism and paired with the fact that there was a decreasing amount of local information and an increasing amount of disinformation reaching people online. And so everything we did at Acronym, we had a process where you pilot an idea to test a hypothesis. And then if if you find it works, you scale it. And you scale it by bringing it to the donors and, and showing the evidence and the proof that it's effective and it's promising and that you explain to them what you can do if you have more resources to really bring that idea to, to scale and increase your impact. Or you find that it doesn't work and you fail it. And you don't tell the donor so much about those, but you test a lot of things. And we certainly have had failures and mistakes. And that's important. That's how you innovate. That's how you grow. And so we we really did build a case for Courier and brought that case to our donor and investor community. And we were incredibly fortunate to have really early and deep investment from Reed Hoffman behind this idea and behind our methodology and our approach. And then I will say that we took on a lot. We did a lot at Acronym. I'm so proud of everything that we did there. But there came a time where it really was, you kind of had to pick your winners and and double down on those. And so when I made the decision to step down, we made sure that some of our most effective programs and products lived on, but under new leadership. My former colleague, Tatenda Musa Patika, she now runs a nonprofit called Voter Formation Project that was born out of a program we started at Acronym. And our newsletter, for what it's worth, continues on under the leadership of Kyle Tharp, the editor and writer of it. And, and so I decided that the thing I really wanted to focus on in scale was Courier. And so I made the plan to spin it out and to be independent and to bring a small community of investors together to, to raise a series seed round so we could purchase the company from the nonprofit. I was, of course, recused from that negotiation and then continue the operations of it, but under this new, very transparent and very traditional, if you will, for-profit structure. We're a public benefit corporation. Is that the same as a B Corp? Yeah, there are B Corp certification programs, and then there are designations by the IRS. So we're a public benefit corporation as designated by the IRS, but we we share a lot of attributes as the certificate programs that exist. Besides Reed Hoffman, who else came in and invested? Yeah, very, very lesser known man named George Soros. I'm sure no one's heard of him. He is one of our lead investors that came on board when I did the restructure. We also have incredible entrepreneurs and philanthropists um, on the cap table, such as Sage Weil, who's doing some really interesting work on radio in Wisconsin as well. Swathi and Matt in San Francisco, they run a, a organization called Insight Fund that supports a lot of progressive um programs and organizations. We have all of them listed on the site. We're really transparent about our investors, but we only have about eight investors total. And then of course we have dozens and dozens of underwriting supporters who are essentially individuals and organizations who contribute underwriting resources to fund our journalism, just like NPR or Guardian or other news organizations. I've gone to a bunch of the sites and looked at them, the website part. And I got from your earlier description that that's probably only the tip of the iceberg of what's going on, because I my reaction to it was like, oh, this is pretty thin. 
there aren't a lot of current things on some of these. And it's just not yet like a local newspaper uh, would be with with a lot of reporting every day on that area. Yeah, I was going to say that probably the worst place to go to understand our model is on the websites, which is inverse of what most people would think. But we really are a direct distribution news organization. So our, and we are going to be updating the sites. They were such a low priority for us because we knew that our audience don't really go to websites and our revenue is not dependent on ads, right? So many news organizations today depend on you going to their website. That's why we have the term clickbait because the more eyeballs they get on that website, the more dollars they can make off advertisers. That is not our model. So we don't need to do clickbait, which is wonderful. What our reporters really focus on is developing content every single day. The newsrooms produce about 600 original pieces of content a week. So they're incredibly generative, but you're not going to find most of them on the websites. You're going to find them when you go to their Instagram channels, their TikTok channels, their Facebook pages. And then when you sign up for their newsletters, that's where most of the information is. So you are aiming this at a particular audience. You've described that briefly, but tell me a little bit more about who, why, and how. Yeah, absolutely. So the term that we prefer to use for our audience is passive news consumers. Again, it tends to describe most Americans today, but passive news consumers are people who predominantly get their news and information on social media or through their personal networks. They don't watch cable news. They don't pay through paywalls for the most part. They're not listening to NPR. They're very rarely turning on their local television news, if at all. So they really are just getting their news in the you know average six to seven hours a day they're spending on their phones, their smartphones. And so we built a model back in acronym days. And at that point in time, we were calling this audience low information, low political knowledge. Americans, just this past year, our data team did an analysis to see sort of where the overlap was between low turnout Americans, people who don't vote frequently, and our low political knowledge universe. And it's the same audience. (laughs) So we no longer need to really rely on additional models. It really is people who don't vote at all who are eligible or who vote very infrequently. About 50% of our overall audience voted for the very first time after the 2016 election. So this audience, they are the ones who make a critical difference in elections when they do turn out. They are also often neglected by the billions of dollars spent in political advertising every cycle because the vast majority of that money is very intentionally spent on likely voters because they are seen as having a higher ROI, if you will. And so often our audience that we care about at Courier, they either only get reached during GOTV, get out the vote time, or they're not reached at all. And yet we found through our rigorous testing that when you do reach them and you do engage them with good information, they do show up. They do show up and vote. And that's that. And we also know from you know, decades of academic research that um, when someone votes once and you get them to vote a second time or they vote a second time, they're more likely to turn that into lifelong behavior. This gets back to our mission. The success of Courier over time will be if we actually expand the voting electorate in this country. And it's not for Democrats. I want to be really explicit about that. It is, I believe deeply that to have a strong democracy, you need to have as many people participating in it as possible. And then there will be progress as a result. The reason that extremists on the right are so intent on suppressing the vote and changing the voting laws and and claiming voter fraud when there's no evidence to support it is because they benefit and win power when the least amount of people vote. So our job is to get as many people out to vote as possible. And the way to do that is through good information that can actually inform and empower them to understand the power they have and the agency they have when they participate. I am a little doubtful of the statement that the more people vote, the better progressives or Democrats do. I noted that more people voting spurred by Trump, people who had never voted before. I think it can happen on both sides. It can happen both on the right, on the left. That's been a long theory on on my side, your side, but 
Uh, I'm not sure if like that's the current state of politics, even though I agree with you philosophically, I would want, I want a active democracy with everybody voting. How important to your theory of the case is that assumption? I'm really glad you said that because it is, that was a broad sweeping claim and it neglects to address the real constraints to our democracy that we currently have. They are embedded in the structures currently. And what I mean by that is the electoral college, right? Like a true democracy would be reliant on a popular vote, not an electoral vote, right? Where everyone's vote holds the same amount of value and influence, right? You talked about the Republicans or the right suppressing the vote. They're not trying to suppress everybody. They're specifically targeting who they want to suppress to people that are have a higher propensity to vote Democrat. That's right. That is more accurate. And it also comes down to where you're talking about, right? States that have much larger rural communities and smaller urban centers, that's different. And so it's not, it is not true. It it is not fair to make that a blanket statement. My aspiration for our country and our democracy is that if every person were voting, we would see more progress in this country. It would truly be a government by and for the people. That is not really exactly what we have. Especially if that if that wide electorate was well-informed, like truly well-informed, not misinformed, not disinformed or whatever the word for disinformation steeped would be. It seems to me like you've gone through this transition from acting as an avowed partisan to acting as a journalist, you know, at, but without abandoning progressive viewpoint. That's pretty clear on your sites, like in the abouts, right? Where are you exactly now on that spectrum? How do I understand Tara now? Sure. God, oh, I love that question because I always get told what I am or <laughs> it's written about and I'm always like, really? Am I? Um, yeah, no, I'll probably surprise you a little bit here. I have always referred to myself as a pragmatic progressive. I hold very deeply progressive views and belief systems. But I live in the world of the real. I understand the constraints. I understand how government works. I understand how politics works and how information and disinformation influences these things. And so um, I live in the world of what is possible and try to push the envelope there. But for the objective of being able to actually have a more representative and equitable democracy in this country. And I do think that that requires a bigger electorate. I also think like I have never been a party person. I left journalism to work in politics because of Barack Obama. A lot of people come into politics because of an individual that inspires them as opposed to a party. It wasn't the party that inspired me. It was the candidate. And at the time I left journalism, he had been elected president and I wanted to be a part of the vision for this country that he had laid out. I don't think that is the vision or the model of a lot of Democrats. I think the other thing is in the work that I did, I so I only ever worked for one political campaign in my life, and that was President Obama's re-election campaign. It's the only campaign I've ever worked on. I have directly, worked, directly. 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 I have worked on the independent expenditure side. I have worked for progressive organizations that do a lot of advocacy work in some political work like Planned Parenthood and NextGen and organizations like that. But I've also always been very tactically focused. I like to win. I am definitely motivated by winning progress in whatever form and shape that looks like in this country. I've always been somebody who has wanted to solve problems and fill gaps and and increase innovation where I feel like too often there's a lot of resting on laurels or conventional wisdom that is broken in a very disruptive environment that we're in socially and politically and technologically today. And so where you can place me is, I mean, some people would call me center left, left of center. I actually meant less where could I locate you personally, ideologically, and more where can I locate this enterprise that is your offspring in a certain way? Where are you placing it? When I talk to people who are funders in the progressive ecosystem, they and I say, what are the gaps? Very commonly, they will say, well, the antidote to Fox or to the right-wing news ecosystem, which isn't what you're building, but it's where money was available because people knew that gap. Did you go through a process of, of sort of uh, saying this might be of this kind of help, this might fit into this area, and then 
we started with our audience, right? And listening to our audience and understanding where they are. Our audience, the vast majority of our audience believes that abortion should be legal in all instances. The vast majority of our audience wants legalization and decriminalization of marijuana in this country. The vast majority of our audience want more gun control than we've passed so far in this country. They hold what would be described by the mainstream media as progressive values, but they would not self-identify as progressives or Democrats. Our approach to editorial, which is led by a VP of content, managing editors at the national level, and an editor in every single one of our eight states where we have newsrooms, their editorial approach is very much about centering the stories and the lives of the audiences that we seek to engage and connecting the dots for them between the issues they confront on a daily basis that impact their lives and their families with the people who are responsible for making those decisions or running to represent them in their state house or in Washington. We are not ideological. We are not pushing an agenda. We are not political. We are interested in espousing our values and representing the values of the community that we're serving in hopes that we can build a bridge for them to participate more fully in democracy and society. Do you know Jen Brendel, who runs something called Harkin? It is an enterprise that helps newsrooms connect to their audiences. It provides tools and consulting around that. She's also a entrepreneur of multiple accomplishments. And I talked to her recently about like what she thought needed to change in the news industry and some of this questions about like Fox and is it an antidote. And like a lot of people who who you know believe in journalism but have critiques of it, she's like, we definitely don't need a mirror. We need something that is more participatory, that is more democratic. I think there's some overlap between what you might be aiming at and what she's advocating. I think that's right. Because I think a misconception I have heard about Courier from people who have not have not really taken the time to understand the model is that we're trying to create more Democrats in this country. That is not our objective. That is explicitly not our objective. Our objective is to create more voters in this country and more voters that are going to make a decision because we don't endorse candidates. We don't tell people to vote for. We do tell them where their candidates and their elected officials stand on the issues that they tell us matter to them. Is that a good fit for this moment? I mean, honestly, we have a problem with the Republican Party, which is highly connected to a media ecosystem that is deceitful and driving them purposely further and further to the right. Is this a fit for this moment? How is this like an antidote to the creeping fascism and authoritarianism that we're all worried about? It it is a fit because maybe I'm not describing it well and it sounds like it's like vanilla or white bread and it's really not. Our accountability coverage is pretty intense um, because the other thing is most Americans don't want extremism. Most Americans don't want abortion bans. Us holding elected officials and candidates accountable on their extremely out of touch and radical views is good journalism, is necessary information that's reaching them. So I think our targeted distribution model is doing more than some of the largest news organizations in this country to combat and defeat fascism because of how we think about actually getting this information in front of the people who are not going to see it on their own, but are unfortunately going to be reached by a lot of disinformation and lies coming out of the mouths of people like Ben Shapiro or Tucker Carlson, who just have enormous megaphones on social media. You've sort of indicated that you do a lot of careful measurement of whether people become voters, but do you also measure like or have a sense of who they vote for? Or is it only just because you're targeting people with progressive values and trying to get them to vote that you think that this is going to have that kind of positive effect? Or I'm trying to understand like why you're confident that the impact is beneficial. Not that I doubt it at all. I'm just, I'm trying to understand that in the detail. 
Like I said, and I mean this genuinely, our goal is not to increase Democratic votes. If that happens, I personally, Tara McGowan, would be happy about it. That's not how we design our work. That's not how our reporters report their journalism. It is about getting the information very explicitly in ways that they will access out there and then hoping that that gets them to the polls. If that gets people to the polls to vote against Democrats, we don't know that. And that's a byproduct of this work. Do I feel confident that that's not happening for the most part? I do. I feel confident about that because of the information we have from our audiences on the issues they care about and the values they hold. The more they hear from us about Carrie Lake's extremism or Mastriano's or what have you, I would would be hard pressed to find a lot of folks that are reached at a high frequency with our journalism who are inspired to turn out for those candidates, given the values we know they hold. It sounds really great that you don't have to worry about clickbait and you aren't an advertising-based journalism model. What is the business model? How do you plan to support this enterprise other than, than donors? Yeah. So like pretty much any news organization or media company today, you have to have a diversified revenue model. You can't rely on any one stream. Even the largest legacy publishers like New York Times understand that now. You have to have multiple ways of bringing in resources. So our primary revenue stream since day one has been underwriting, as I mentioned, which is mission aligned individuals and organizations that give money to either specific newsrooms or to coverage areas to help us expand our ability to cover certain topics, hire more journalists, boost that news to our audiences. We have a firewall. They don't review, approve, or influence that journalism. They give us the money because they like our model. They like our audience focus. They have shared values and objectives as we do. So that's by and large that the largest amount of revenue we bring in to the tune of millions of dollars a year. Increasingly, now that we have over 900,000 online subscribers across our eight states, that's really significant. It's very competitive with some other major local and national news startups in the country. We now can monetize, which means we will never pay for our, we will never charge our audience for our content, right? That's core to our model. But we will be able to now integrate sponsorship and advertising in our email newsletters, sponsors of events that we hold within our states as well as a membership program to increase the membership gifts that can come in for people who want to see local left-leaning journalism in this country. And so that program's actually just launched recently. And it's really to engage people who maybe aren't the people we feel we need to inform. They already are very informed, but they want to see the electorate and the country uh, be more informed and be more engaged. Is sponsorship of a newsletter different than advertising? No, it's just we don't do on-site ads. Like there are some on our sites, but as I mentioned, we don't drive traffic there, so they do not bring in very much income. Some other models out there, like Push Black, Pulso, that kind of group, compare and contrast for just a little bit. Sure. So for your audiences who might not know, um, so Push Black is a media property that is predominantly based on Facebook and Facebook Messenger is their um, primary distribution channel. I also believe they have an email community and potentially other social community aspects, but their content, their editorial and content strategy is really about Black history stories and facts for an audience that is majority Black Americans in this country. And they do incorporate a lot of um, information about voting and civic engagement and participation um, into their um, editorial, Uh, but they are not news-driven whatsoever. They're really focused on cultural history, which is interesting. Pulso is for a predominantly Latino community, I believe. And again, it's not news or hard-hitting news. It's much more cultural affinity content and community building. So there's a lot of similarities in the distribution strategies of our models, but less so on the editorial, I would say. Their revenue models, they're entirely 501c3. So they're very, very, very reliant on donations of their members and their readers who love their content. You have these really sort of A-list progressive funders. What do you think they think they're getting by funding this? I think that they believe in our model. They believe in the evidence um, that we have brought to bear to support the efficacy of our model. I'll tell you, it wasn't easy to sell left-leaning journalism (laughs) to a lot of these donors. It seems to have failed repeatedly many 
well-funded, relatively well-funded attempts to do this. And not only that, local journalism like AOL had their big thing. There are lots of attempts that have really foundered. I mean, I think a lot of the examples that you're talking about from the past, maybe Air America, maybe um, Upward, the others that, that were invested in by, by some folks on the left, they never found sustainable revenue models. And I would argue, because I had to educate myself on these for the ones I didn't even know well, because I'd be confronted with those questions quite a bit when I started fundraising for Courier. There was that, the inability to identify a really strong and sustainable revenue model for the companies, as most companies, media companies, it's just incredibly difficult. You're either massive, like Murdoch's Enterprises, or you're hyper-local and you figured out a really strong online membership base like Texas Tribune. It's just a tough landscape to begin with. But the other difference that I think is really important with our model and why I think a lot of our donors and our investors are supportive is because of our audience focus. It's because of the fact that we are not trying to preach to the choir. We are not trying to organize the base of the left. We are not there to feed them red meat and keep them engaged. That is important. I would put Crooked, Pod Save America in that camp. I would put MSNBC in that camp, right? Like talking and organizing the high information left of this country. And that is not what we are doing. We are trying to engage the people that I really feel have been left behind, both by the Democratic Party and progressive movement, as well as the mainstream media, since they're not paying for subscriptions today. What do they want to know about? Like that Jen Brandel, who I mentioned earlier, her focus has been on like figuring out what do people out there want to know and trying to talk newsrooms into listening to them and producing answers to questions that are generated not within the newsrooms, but external to them by their audience. Yes, I am such a preacher of that too. I think Jen and I would get along really well. I think that as a former journalist, as someone who has a lot of friends who are journalists and spends a lot of time with journalists, um, journalists have are they're they're very highbrow. Their incentives are are not always great. They're often incentivized um, by the respect of their peers or winning awards, as opposed to actually informing the audiences that they seek to represent with their journalism. I think that's a key difference. And so we spend a a lot of time we we invest in state-based polling with a polling partner really focused specifically on our audience to understand and and not just any not just everything related to politics or kind of issues of the day in that respect also what they're thinking and feeling about their sports teams in the state or things that are important to them in their communities um, that don't necessarily reach the level of you know national political coverage and and that informs the journalism also one of the things I love most about the messy world of digital and the internet is we have so much data. I talk to my friends who are now getting into or have been in the radio business, and I am just baffled by how little data they actually have. Try it's podcasting. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't live in those worlds. Like I love the data. We know based on what people click on, what they sign up on, like why they sign up. We pretty much know every single person who signs up for one of our state newsletters, we know what article or what piece of content brought them in to sign up. That teaches us more of what we need to feed them in addition to surveying these audiences across social and across email. So tell me about the journey of a person who goes from vaguely part of your target audience to reading some of your stuff or seeing some of your videos and becoming a subscriber. How does that come to them originally? How do they decide to attach themselves to one of your groups? And then what do they end up seeing over time? There's no real secret sauce here. It's pretty much a content marketing funnel, which most savvy media companies and news organizations use today. You put a lot out there, right? Our journalists produce a lot of different stories and content. And what we do is we target a lot of it, all different kinds of stories and reporting, everything from the best hiking trails in your community to food reviews 
to stuff related to politics and government. We target our audiences on social media. So on Facebook, on Instagram, on search engines, based on what they're searching. And so let's say Susan in Michigan is scrolling her Instagram or her Facebook, let's say Facebook, and an article pops up about free things to do on the weekend in her community with her family from the Gander, our newsroom in Michigan. She clicks on that. It goes to the site, but it asks you it to sign up for the newsletter, the daily newsletter. She signs up for that newsletter. She reads the article. Maybe she shares it. Maybe she likes it. Maybe she doesn't. She's now getting a newsletter from the Gander that gives her more content like that that she wants. Woven into those newsletters are content and reporting about politics and government. It's minimal. It's not the bulk of what these audiences want or are looking for. But as we say, we weave in the vegetables. And I really do think that that is not a a novel approach. I think that's like the New York Times buying Wordle and making most of their subscriptions off of their crossword puzzle and travel section. You give people what you want, you weave in the vegetables to make sure they get that information in bite-sized doses. And then over time, you deepen their trust and their engagement. You give them more of what they want. You ask them more of what they want to see. We're going to, over time, hopefully be launching products that are specific to topics like education, agriculture in Wisconsin, workforce in Iowa, and then building communities around that that want more of that very specific information. If you discover, as many people have discovered, that what people want, they don't necessarily want vegetables, but they may actually want things that are not good for them. They may want stuff that you don't even want to be a purveyor of. How do you keep yourself from following the desires of an audience that may want stuff that's junk food? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. We can't, this is the big shift that's happened in the media environment and in our personal consumption habits. You self-select the information that you get. There is so much, there's never been more content or information in the world than there is today. And every person is inundated. This is why social media platforms are so powerful and algorithms are so powerful because it curates your experience. So you don't need to go look for all the different things you want, but it means there's a higher bar at, at building trust and engagement with people because they can go anywhere else for it. So those people that might want more of the junk food than we would ever be reporting through our newsrooms, they're going to go get it. We can't prevent that. What we can do is try to give them more of the content that they want that isn't the junk food and get them some of that other vegetable content in between in their news feeds, in their newsletters. We're under no illusion that we're going to prevent people from going and following those clickbait rabbit holes. But we do know that when people are reached with disinformation and also factual information, in the same places at the same time, disinformation does not have the same effect. It is when you're reached by disinformation in a vacuum where it is the majority of the information you're getting, right? There's that old adage, you hear something three times, it becomes the truth, whether it is or not. So part of our goal is to just try to create more parity in terms of the types of information people are getting, knowing that that can make that disinformation less effective, less dangerous. How do you characterize the current sort of battlefield between people like you who are trying to to do, to convey real information? And there are, I mean, there's metric media with 1,200 sites and the whole pink slime journalism I have no real understanding of that world besides reading about it. What's your sense of how do we stack up the various people who are you and your allies versus the the very active right-wing experiments that are also going on? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just speak specifically to metric media and how we're different. Metric media is over 1,200 pink slime sites hyper-local. They all look exactly the same. Um, They are AI-driven. It's been widely reported on that uh, Brian Timpone, who runs this network, hires companies in Bangladesh and also uses AI. Um, They're not written by real reporters. They aren't people within their communities. They're really just flooding the zone with shit, as Steve Bannon would say. Excuse my French. I don't think there's any question that they, they, they suck, right? People like that. But like in terms of efficacy, the scale that they have versus what you're trying to do. How is that stacking up out there with all of the things added up? 
Yeah. So what's interesting is I think that they were slower to understand the evolving consumption habits. And so they invested in all of these websites. And I think they're just now realizing that you build it and people don't come. And so they actually have to bring that content to people the way that we started our model. We just saw them last week for the first time start to spend money on meta platforms to boost their pink slime journalism, which is not great. That's a page out of our playbook. I think that we are more targeted and we are more strategic and we are honest and we do not so confusion or division. So we're very, very different. And also all of our journalism is produced by people who live within these communities in the States. That is something I will never compromise on, even as more media and traditional media goes into AI. I think it is so important. I think trust comes at the individual level. Messenger matters more than message. That's why we're seeing the creator economy, right? Explode. It's because it really comes down to individuals and that's where they can't compete. They really can't. They can at the national level, right? Their personalities like Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens. And we don't have a bench like that, unfortunately, on our side of non-elected official celebrities. But I, I, I think when it comes to the local level, trust is the most important thing and they don't have that. Where would you like to be in five to 10 years as this matures and grows? What do you want to see it doing? I want Courier to have newsrooms and presence everywhere. And I mean, in in hyper-local and small and cultural communities, in addition to 50 states, I think that we have set a new precedent for what journalism is today. And we're being very explicit about that. And we want to bring other publishers along to understand that you have to change your format. You have to change your distribution strategies in order to really inform the public. And and so I think, you know, by now, Nathaniel, that I have a very large appetite um, and ambition for this, but I think it's possible. We've built something incredibly scalable. We just need the resources to scale it. That's always the challenge. We don't have the benefactors that give into this work at the level of the Murdochs or the Mercers on the right. I think that we are of the most successful attempt at this so far, and I I am fully confident we will be successful at scaling it, but that's always the challenge is resources and speed because we don't have a whole hell of a lot of time. You sort of talked about disinformation and polarization. What do you think are the ills of current journalism that you are trying to cure with this? Where do I start? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think I've already spoken at length about the distribution, right? Distribution, they're really only focused for the most part um, on reaching people who will pay, right? You get hit with paywalls anytime you try to read an article today. That's one thing is that gatekeeping good information is bad for democracy, but they haven't figured out a business model that doesn't rely on that. I don't mind paying for the Washington Post and the New York Times and a few things like that. I mean... But it's going to get to the point, right, where where I think a lot of people are feeling it with streaming apps, where it's like, wait a second, suddenly I'm spending double what I ever paid for a cable bill because every app has a different show I want. And that's going to be the case with news and content, too, unfortunately. And so they've created an information divide and a vacuum in America that disinformation is filling, and they have a responsibility to not worsen that information gap. So I think that's one thing that I think is an ill of media today. The second is that let's just talk about how they report on politics and government because it is not relatable to the vast majority of Americans. It is really about clickbait. It really is about keeping everyone on their toes, horse race coverage, sausage making process. It's like there was a period of time earlier this year where I swear that I had to log off Twitter and any social media because I couldn't get away from Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. And they're two individuals when there were 50 Republicans who were also holding back on voting for the meaningful legislation that Democrats were trying to pass. And so political reporters today at the state and the national level, I think are by and large focused on the wrong things. And it would do them and our country and our democracy a great deal of good if they would start actually telling the stories of the American people, because that's what connects with people. And that's what connects with politics and government. And so I I also think that we don't have enough civic education in our journalism any longer. Context is really important and that gets very lost. And they're all competing with each other for the same stories, which is just diminishing returns. So I think that our media has to mature in quite a number of ways, but the incentives aren't really in the right place given their their current business models. What's the biggest challenge for you? Is it finding good journalists to report the kind of things that you want in the States? Is it just the funding? Is it continually refining the model? What keeps you up? And what are 
what are you what do you need help on? Oh, it's such a boring answer, but it's it's money. It's always money. <laughs> what we could do and how big we could be and how impactful we could be if I had been able to raise, you know, $100 million or $150 million like Ben Smith did for Semaphore that will increase the electorate by not one vote <laughs> in this country. You raised like $70 million or something? Yeah, well, no, that was mostly for acronym and all, and that went all into reaching voters before 2020 so elections. For so this particular yeah. enterprise? We're over three years old now, and there's been between probably 30 to 40 million total. So in way, it. Less, um, way less than you would like. Way less. For three years, significantly less. So we always need more money. What could you use? Like, if you could. I mean, I, I think with 100 to $150 million, we wouldn't, I wouldn't need to spend as much time raising money over the next few years to really get to the scale we need by 24 and beyond. And I think that's, that's the ambition. I think there's been a really steep education curve for the donor community about the value and the efficacy of investing in media. That is not a natural thing. There's, of course, what we talked about, some of the failed ventures of the past, but also it's just not that, you know, there it's, it doesn't, it's not as transactional. Is it that they're watching you and they need to see a certain threshold kind of, of return on what they've put in so far? I mean, what I've heard from many entrepreneurs who have not been as successful as you at raising money, but, or most of them haven't, is that like higher ground labs is going to put 50 grand into something that can't be tested without half a million or not through any fault of their own, but just that's the scale in which a lot of the donations are maybe with the exception of the super PACs that you have some experience with. It's the nature of any donor to say, I'd like to see, I'm not going to just put a billion into this until I, I, uh, I really know it's working. It is really different for different people. I will tell you there are a set of donors or investors right, who put their investor hat on because it's a for-profit company, even though it is mission aligned, it's not going to make anyone rich, who want to know that it's going to get to the point of profitability or sustainability, right? I'm not going to need to go back to them for five or 10 million a year. That's important. That's important to me. That's important to them. We haven't you know, been able to answer that yet. Most media organizations can't. And I'm, you know, sometimes to a fault, very transparent <laughs> about managed expectations there. But then there's other folks who I think are starting to turn a corner, but they're not ever the first movers, right? They're not the Reed Hoffmans who are willing to take risks, who know the benefits that come from taking risks and calculated risks. And they're waiting for more community to jump in. And I think we're getting there. And I spent a lot of time on that. When you say community, are you talking about donor community? Or are you talking yes. about, yeah. No, I'm talking about donor community. Yeah. I also think we've grown exponentially. Um, and so that makes it more real for people. But there's another small challenge that I'll mention, which is that we don't develop content and journalism for the donor community. So they don't understand the value proposition as quickly as potentially a semaphore or, you know, something that they're going to want to consume. Well, give me an example of something that you're really proud of that doesn't reach them. And give me an example of something that does reach them. All of our content is really designed, you know, it localizes the issues and it does it in a way that is accessible on social media. And so I think a lot of the donor community and my community of colleagues were interested in deep dives and analysis and Atlantic pieces and things that make us feel and contextualize what we already live in and know. And so that's not what we're providing. If you don't live in our states, our content isn't relevant for the most part, right? And so there's that element too. You know, one thing that I'm really, really, really proud of that we just, we actually just launched um, over the past week is what we're calling our Good Info Messengers program. And I think this is something that a lot of donors are excited about too, because we're actually integrating the best of digital organizing into our newsrooms, because we can't always rely on paid media to get our content in front of our audiences. But we can't rely on the algorithms because they won't help us, right? They want to put people in these camps instead of getting at people who aren't in those camps and who are more interested in cultural or entertainment media or news. And so, so this program, we have a national content organizing director I brought on this year, Kate Bassett. She's hired organizers in each of our states that work within the newsrooms. And their job is to one-to-one -one go build and nurture relationships with people within the community, community leaders, influencers 
influencers, other news organizations to start to really build a, a fortuitous cycle of feedback and sourcing and information, but also getting people to share our news content. A big theory of our case is that the best antidote to disinformation is increasing the flow of good information. We have to be organized. We have to share the good news and good stories and content that we have on our side. And we need to do it regardless of if we think it matters to our audience or not, because you never know who it's going to influence. And I'm really excited about that effort because I think it'll make sense also. Why do you call that organizing? What about that is exactly organizing as opposed to publicist <laughs> I mean, um, engaging grassroots organizations on the ground and then holding trainings. So our organizers hold virtual and in-person trainings about the impact of sharing news content online, right? All the research that we have that shows that it increases turnout. And so we're, we're building a community of messengers who are essentially able to raise their hand and share the content within the states where we have newsrooms organically. There's lots of existing groups with lots of volunteers, from the swing left to the Democratic Party to everything in between. Invisible chapters move right. on. Yeah, yes. Parenthood. Every, everybody's Invisible got chapters. like an army. And there are some people who have the ability to really connect that to like a task to do, like through Mobilize or other things out there. To what extent are you able to say, here's another thing you can do letter writing, you can do door knocking, you can do relational organizing, you can do news spreading. That is the objective. It is not to build something from scratch on our own. It's to infuse our news content into those communities, into those organizing programs and infrastructure as another way. Because I've always been frustrated that, you know, we have organizers do X, Y, Z things. Finally, we evolved into text messaging, which was way more effective than calling, but that's going to get hurt this cycle. We really need to incorporate the sharing of good information online into organizing, into traditional and campaign organizing programs. And that's the hope of this effort is that we can do it. And it's not just about couriers, newsroom content. It's about really building that theory of the case that this matters. And this can really out volume and outpower the narratives that are coming out of the right. Is all of your news generated by your reporters or do you contract out or buy stories? Like, can you have, do you have freelancers? Do you, can someone who would like to be part of this, but, but doesn't have full time, can they join one of your enterprises? How open are you to other models or, or are you already doing that? So each of our eight newsrooms has between three to five full-time staff on the ground, editor, reporter, content producer, and now increasingly content organizers too in the mix. They also always reach out to freelancers and lean on a freelance network. We're always growing that network, but it's really important to us that we have those full-time staff who are part of our organization and building these communities over the long haul. But we do have freelancers and then anyone can go to couriernewsroom.com. We have all of our jobs listed as well as ways to sign up for the messenger's program because you don't need to live in one of our states to participate in that or join one of the trainings and follow Courier on social media. It aggregates all of the newsrooms content so people can follow along and share it. But yeah, we're always looking to grow. When you asked before if it was a challenge to find good reporters in the states, unfortunately, good for us, bad for the world, it's not because there are not very many local journalism jobs today. I know that we're probably getting to the end of our time, but I just want to ask you, like, how did you pick these eight? And what if somebody came to you and says, I want to be the editor for another state? Can they talk you into it? Or what, what's the process going to be to expand? Yeah. So, of course, um, priorities of a startup are largely driven by your investors and where you can raise money. So our first root newsroom was the Dogwood that we launched in 2019 in Virginia. There was an election that year. I was able to, to raise resources to pilot it there. We're in Arizona, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Swing states. Yes, and we made our first acquisition last year of Iowa Starting Line, which is an incredible publication that's been around since about 2016 in Iowa. They're now part of our network. So I, as I mentioned before, I want to be everywhere. We're looking at acquisition strategies and opportunities as well as building. We've built something really turnkey. Um, the hardest part, um, but it's it's not so difficult. It just takes time and energy, is finding the talent on the ground who are really going to 
infuse it with what matters to the community at the local level. Once you have that person, we have turnkey infrastructure. We take care of all of the bells and whistles, the front office, back office, the things that we don't want journalists and editors to have to worry about. We want them to focus on the reporting and the content. People have to show up with money to get me to go to a new state because I can't keep adding without adding resources. That's one of the limitations. But we made a decision with our board to not grow this year in the interest of really building out our audiences and our existing markets. And as I mentioned, we're going to hit a million online subscribers by the end of this year, which makes us really formidable in those states. And then I'll feel more confident about expanding to, to new markets and states. Is there anything else you'd like my listeners, such as they are, to know about Courier or other to things that are going word. on? <laughs> we need this. This is not controversial. It is transparent, left-leaning journalism at the local level to do whatever you can to support it, whether that's joining the Messengers program at the website, couriernewsroom.com, or just sharing the newsrooms with your friends and family who live in our states. Word of mouth is, is, is one of the best tools we have to get this information out there. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Oh, goodness. I feel like we covered a lot of ground, Nathaniel. I don't know how we're feeling about this. I'm shocked you didn't, but I'm kind of ref- <laughs> I'm kind of delighted you didn't in terms of the midterms. <laughs> All I'll tell you is I am not as optimistic as the current upsurge in democratic optimism. I don't know if that's where you are, but how are you feeling just not data-based, but like in the vibe of the yeah. moment? I, I am I'm an I'm a strong instinct person anyway. I, I read data, but I take it all with a lot of salt. I feel cautiously optimistic. I think that we could expand um, the Democratic majority in the Senate, and I think that it, Democrats could squeeze by a win to hold the majority in the House. I don't think it's a given. I certainly think that nobody should trust the polls. I think they're incredibly inflated. I also think you know. Kansas was incredible, and we will see a surge by women in particular in all races across this country because of the Dobbs decision by SCOTUS. Yet, the timing of Kansas was very, very close, and we know how distracted people can get. And so it really is going to come down to as many of the people who voted for the first time in 2018 and 2020 to show up again for Democrats to make those gains or holds. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I don't think it's a given, and I think we have a lot of work to do over the next days. I can tell that you have a lot to do over the next bunch of years in putting together Courier, and I am interested to watch that, and hopefully we'll talk about it again when it's improved and larger and and more successful than it is even now. It's it's pretty great right now, but hopefully we'll be in a lot more places and a lot more people will know about it. So thank you so much for having me, Nathaniel. Always so great to catch up. That was Tara McGowan. She's at couriernewsroom.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.